right. Welcome to another episode of Congress Two Beers In. Uh, I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Josh Huter and Matt Glassman. Hey. All right. I was supposed to say hi. You were supposed to say hi. That was my cue. So um, he was in the middle of drinking his beer. I want to say that we are back to drinking beer yep. during these. I, I brought in two different ones, one to kind of talk about where we are and one to kind of talk about where we want to go. Um, I brought in D.C. Brow Corruption. Um, and then I brought uh, Kona from Hawaii. Uh, what we didn't necessarily have in the house was the big wave. So that's what we'll be drinking today. And corruption, uh, I might say, on the side, it is actually based on the corrupt bargain. It talks about Henry Clay forming coalition uh, to put Adams in the White House instead of Jackson, and that is on this beer. Right? This, is not, this is not corruption like, oh, you uh, bought off an agency or you're lobbying thing. This is high level. Yeah. Intrigue in the House of Representatives with the President. D.C. Brown does not screw around with his history. <laughs> 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what um, a lot's been going on um, since we last talked to you guys a couple weeks ago. Obviously, Congress has gotten back in session. Um, and we finally have um, a functioning House and Senate. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the Senate because I think most of the time we're going to talk about the House. But there are a couple things I want to touch on real quick, and then I'll defer to my colleagues here. I mean, there are a couple of historical things that happened in the Senate this week. Uh, one was Mitch McConnell is now the longest-serving leader of a party um, ever, uh, passing uh, Mansfield from Montana. Um, in, this is in somewhat stark contrast to what we're seeing in the House. We have a Republican leader who's been there for an awfully long time. He had a little bit of a, little bit of a dust-up, you know, a handful of folks who were against him. Um, but he still was able to get the job done. And then I think uh, in another show of the beginnings of gender, not equality, but at least gender happenings in the Senate, we had our first president pro tem, who's a female, uh, Patty Murray, uh, take over as the president pro tem. Now, that historically has been a position that's been held by the longest-serving member of the majority party. Um, However, this time it's not. Because the longest-serving member of the majority party right now is Dianne Feinstein from California. Um, It is not likely that she would have been able to accomplish the duties, but for whatever reason, she declined to take the job when I think Chuck Schumer asked her to consider that option. We've been here before. Um, This happened about 20, 20 couple years ago with Strom Thurmond, right? Yep. Um, Yep. But then he was almost 100 years old at the time. Yep. Um, so this is not a thing, but, uh, just one quick, one more quick thing I want you guys to, to comment on about the Senate, which is the 5149 is really different. We, we did talk a little bit about this beforehand, but at the same time, the Senate isn't like we've started, right? They got a couple things they got to get done. I, I, I mean, like, so 5149, how different is it? It's, I mean, it's a little different, right? It's not, it's not, doesn't change the staff that much. Some of the court and some of the judges and nominees go through faster, but it's not hugely different. Um, one thing that I think is for certain is that this Senate will organize faster than the last one, right? Remember Mitch McConnell filibustered the organizing resolution um, after Democrats officially took over the majority on January 20th when... Uh, Senators Warnock and Ossoff were sworn in. Um, But uh, Republicans still had the gavels until March um, because Senator McConnell refused to allow uh, the transition of power to occur within the Senate. (laughs) So 
Uh, that was a weird period of time. Uh, they, aren't, they aren't done yet. There are some committee stuff that they have to iron out, but I, I expect this one to go faster than the last one, that's for sure. Right. I mean, the thing is, you don't have a part of switch. Right. And so staffing's a lot easier as well, right? Yeah. Because uh, there, are prob- there are a few chairmanships that are changing around. Uh, Patty Murray's becoming chair of the Appropriations Committee. Bernie Sanders is becoming chair of the Health. Health. Yeah, Health. Um, and I believe, although I'm not sure this has been finalized, that uh, Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island will become chair of the Budget Committee. Um, less important yeah. uh, in general than the other two. Well, but they don't do budgets. So who cares, right? You know what I mean? I mean if you're chair of the Budget Committee, you've got one job, and you're not, no, the Congress isn't doing that job. So, you know, why do it? I mean, I've always said the Budget Committee was overrated when it was doing budgets. Right. So I was like, what do these people do all year? And, and now they're not even doing that. So I, you yeah. got me. I, the thing I would mention, too, is that it's actually 5148 right now because SAS resigned as of noon yesterday. Good call. Um, so for a short time, it's going to be 5148. That doesn't change a heck of a whole lot. I saw people saying, let's vote on any of the filibuster right now. We need mention cinema, but they don't know how to do math. <laughs> they won't know. It's still 49. <laughs> yeah, they, they won't know. You don't get it. Um, it would be, it'd be 5049, you'd lose, you'd lose. So that doesn't work. Um, but it is 5148 until um, Governor of Nebraska appoints a new senator and then we're back to uh, 5148, Republican governor of Nebraska. Um, and so there's that. Uh, the present pro tem thing is interesting to me. Obviously, this is one of those things that's literally just um, the evolution of time. It's hard to get a woman with a lot of seniority there until there's been a woman with right. a lot of seniority there. <laughs> and so this is obviously one of these things we would expect to have not happened until relatively recently. Uh, more importantly, from the point of view of sort of Gender, I think, is that we're going to have four corners running appropriations that are all women. I think we talked about that last time, but yeah. to me, it's not a big deal. The president pro tem is essentially meaningless until right. it's not meaningless. If you're going to become president under the Secession Act, I have a view that if it ever came to it, the Senate would actually vote for a new pro tem for who they want to be president rather than just quickly installing whoever happened to be the oldest person in the majority party. Um, but that's neither here nor there because that's a Unbelievable long shot. So it's a nice <laughs> honor. I don't know why DiFi turned it down, but uh, lots of speculation. We don't need to get into that. Um, let's get off the Senate. Mark. Yeah, is that, that, thank God. Ryan, so this Mark's idea to start with the Senate. And it's like, I just, what are we talking doing about? It's like going to have an emergency podcast where we start with a chamber where nothing's happening. We're not even in session. <laughs> so, so talking about long shots, um, who had uh, who had fifteen in the in the pool? I had over your six and a half. Yeah, so I yeah. Win that. I had six and a half. Yeah, I had over five and a half against uh, a reporter on the hill, so I won that too. But no. I did not. I would not have put it fifteen. I, you know, there is this historical trend, and I, I brought this up midweek. Is that um, we have a whole bunch of ballot fights over the speakership in the House that when two or three ballots, right? It's like something just couldn't get ironed out, and then it did, and then nothing that got resolved between four through eight. Um, things that tended to grind in where you had a full day of people digging in tended to dig in for at least a few days. Um, we, we, there was no such thing as a time where they took all you know, four ballots on the first day, came back the second day, patched it up. Right? The shortest of the long ones is 1923, where they had to dig in for two days before they got mollified. And here, they ended up digging in for three days right, before they got mollified. I think the, the real story of that, to, at least to me, which yeah. I did not expect going in at all, was the McCarthy coalition and the resilience of McCarthy's yeah. votes. Like that is totally. that was incredible to me. I mean, yeah. I thought like day 3 everybody's tired of this, right? It's like let's just move on, let's find somebody that's acceptable and get this past us. Yeah. Um but they hung in there for 4 days of balloting, which is just 
I, I did not expect that at all, right? That every report that you read was like McCarthy has 60 to 80 people who are like dead set on him. And then there's that, that mushy middle group, and then right. they're the conservatives, right? And I thought for sure that, that that group would start cracking. The fact that they went four days and did not lose a single vote. They lost one vote, no, I one, think, right. that on, on day one or day two. The Donald, beginning of day Donald, two. Donald voted for him on the first, first ballot. Yeah, two yeah. ballots. First two ballots, and then he switched then he over switched. to the rebel camp. I, I was impressed by this, too. I, I, I do now wonder retrospectively, it always my view, that McCarthy's coalition was going to start to crack by Thursday or Friday or latest early this week, what would have been this week. And I don't know now, man. They held together really well. You heard these rumblings on Wednesday. People like, I'm done after a couple more ballots. We've got to find some. You know, this is not going to work. Um, but, you know, to McCarthy's credit, they stuck together to the point where he was able to find the room to bargain without having to worry about his coalition falling apart. And, uh, and, and he did it. I, I, um, I do think, you know, within that, I do think one thing that also happened was the rebels were dealing with a situation where McCarthy was probably the person willing to give the most. <laughs> it seems to be. And, and everyone seemed to have that sense. And so if they were actually looking for a bargain, which it turns out they were, um, there was a long period of time I thought they were just looking for a scalp, but they were willing to bargain, um, that he was going to be the person to bargain with because he wanted to be speaker bad enough to do things that no one else would do. Right. Well, I thought what, what I thought was amazing, too, is that the conservatives played this in a way that they were going to get a lot out of whoever was going to be right. speaker, right? Um and, I mean, th- to the position, like, you're, you're in day two, day three, you've got tons of concessions at this point in time. Like, literally, people within your group are saying, I, I don't know what to ask for anymore. Like, we've sort of gotten it all. <laughs> I mean, cases when, when that's, right, right, when that's the floor, when that's the baseline, like, anybody who's coming in, even after McCarthy, they've got to agree to at least a majority of that stuff to, to get these, these holdouts on board. Um, the conservatives played this in an extremely savvy way. One thing that I still don't understand about this whole experience um, and in some ways, I'm not surprised by how long it took because this this tactic of bartering and literally like buying up votes it takes a long time. Yep. It takes a very long time, which is why you started like in November, right? <laughs> and my question is, what was going on in November and December? And I don't know if it was that the conservatives simply their demands were too steep, or McCarthy wanted to put them in a corner and kind of like pressure them into to to uh, going along with the speakership. Um, or if McCarthy's backers were not willing to uh, support a deal that McCarthy could strike with them um, until it was the last moment. It was viewed as the, uh, in a way that conservatives were not going to bend unless you give them all of this stuff. I don't know what was happening, but I was very, very surprised that it didn't start earlier. Or at least we weren't getting like legitimate negotiations in early December of this caliber where right. people are getting subcommittee gavels. They're getting like the, the select committees that they want. They're getting the procedural changes that they want. Um, it's what Pelosi did right. in 21. It's what Pelosi did in 19. 19, right? 19 yeah. really I mean, yeah. Both of those speakers were run. She had to give away a lot. Yeah. And she did. And she did it. And by the time the speaker's election happened, like it was, it was a foregone conclusion. I, I will say that my view of the rebels now versus the sort of anti-Pelosi crowd from 19 is that Pelosi took a very sort of piecemeal uh, attack on them. And went she after really them group them by group yeah. and member by member and buying them up. Largely because I think they wanted to be bought up um, here, and, and there was a couple of wide scale things like her term limiting pledge and things like that that ultimately sealed it. But here, it looked much more like a centralized negotiation uh, with one big group rather than a buy it up member by member situation, which may have something to do with not being able to do this ahead of time. Um, or McCarthy might have just started by calling her bluff, which is the other option. Right. Um, but he, I mean, he's always been bad at counting votes. <laughs> right, right. As, I mean, as shown by ballot 14. <laughs> he's always been bad at counting votes. And 
But you got to give the, his team credit. They said this is what was going to happen. And this is what happened. I mean, remember we were laughing at the concept of members voting present. I mean, really? That's the chicken vote. You don't vote present. And sure enough, that's how he ended up becoming speaker. He got the rebels to vote present. So it's fascinating to me that the, the plan that he laid out is the one that actually occurred. Well, one thing that I didn't... So there, there was a... The, the group of holdouts was a, it was a diverse one, right? Um, and like Matt was saying, I think they did have to go through a piecemeal approach. There were some gettable votes out there. Obviously, Chip Roy spoke for a lot of the yeah, insurgents, apparently. right? Um, that was more than more than I anticipated. I, I, you know, the kind of people who like actually have ideas about how the house should operate. It's typically like really small people. Like right, members right. of Congress don't care, right? They've got right. like 19 other issues in front of like whether I'm getting an amendment on an appropriations bill or not. Um, but uh, his negotiations and everything that Kevin McCarthy caved on in terms of the institution and the organizational stuff I brought over 16, 15 votes, right? That was a lot. That was a large chunk of votes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that there was the potential to be bought up, so to speak, or to have those negotiations earlier. Um, I think if that had happened, if he had had those sort of votes like in his camp on the first ballot, and we're just talking about like six holdouts on ballots two and three, I think this is much, much shorter. This is maybe a day, maybe two. Right. Um, just because the, the number of people still uh, organizing as dissidents is so tiny. Right. And it's like you don't even need to vote for me at this point. I'm just vote present and we're fine. Yeah. I um, do wonder if that was a, if the Roy crowd was a cheap rebellion. Like they saw that Gates and company were going to do this and they weren't going to win on the first ballot. And they saw that was real. So, like, well, we might as well get on this side of it and get bought up with something. Right. It never felt like Roy was. Trying to block the McCarthy speech. He was he was not a never McCarthy. It always guy. felt like Roy was trying to bargain and trying to get bought up, and that really differentiated those two groups in my mind. Although I have to say, like the field craft at the end was like you know the classic interpersonal stuff that you know McCarthy appealing to Gates at the end was literally like, dude, man, people want to go home. Yeah. Like we got to do this. People want to go home. Somebody's got his mom's funeral. Yeah. I mean, no, somebody I mean, has a wife who's going back to the hospital after giving birth. I mean, that's he played the personal card. Yeah. He really yeah, did. He, appealing to that stuff is like. You know, you've lost. You're going to lose in the end. Why are you dragging this out, right? And that, and that ultimately, I think, is what settled it on Friday night, rather than, you know, probably today. And I'm not sure that was true, though. I mean, if the six of them hold together for another handful of days, does that other coalition crack? But we'll never know. Maybe. I mean, but I, I they, they had already cracked, right? I mean, like to the degree that three of the six were voting present. He needed yeah, two. one more to yeah. two, yeah. right? And the other, like, wrote, it was it was Crane and Rosendale who were still voting for. Biggs yeah. and somebody else, I forget. Um, Jordan, I think. Right, but I mean, like, they, even, their co- even their opposition was cracking at that point in time. Right. right? And it's literally just up to Gates. And I think with, with six people, you can, you know, once you're down to six in that situation, it's much easier to create a prisoner's dilemma where you just tell them, I'm buying two people up, and the rest of you are just getting off the deep end of the plank. Right? Who's going to get bought up and who's going to be in the doghouse? Um, not that they don't have leverage going forward. Um, as we'll talk about, but you can sort of bargain in a much more sort of personal way than when you have 20 people. Yeah. Like when, when he was short of 213, when he had as many votes as Jeffries, like there's nothing, I mean, until you have that, you're really stuck. Right, right. Um, and so I, you know, I credit to McCarthy. Like you yeah. said, his faction was unbelievable in sticking together. I don't know how long they would have stuck together. Um, well, I, I kept saying that. <laughs> it's like every day, it's like, I don't want to tell him this. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think that they could have done another week of this. But we'll never know. Well, that's that's what really shocked me on on Friday night is when that ballot, that fourteenth ballot, came up short, and McHenry stood up and made a motion to adjourn. I'm like, wow, they're adjourning, right? right? I don't, 
I don't know that they survived the weekend at this point because like it's just it you have the momentum like you've got to strike while the iron's hot. I feel like yeah. or or just like on Monday like everybody comes back refreshed and like you don't know what that looks like. Yeah, it's, it's I, a lot I, more uncertainty. I, I think it was absolutely um, crucial for them to get the Roy faction over to them on Before Friday, the on Friday yeah. afternoon. If yeah. they go into the weekend and they haven't made a dent in anything yeah, since the first ballot, over. that was going to be difficult for them to hold it together. There were already people rumbling about, like, you know, maybe this is this is toast. I don't know how many more ballots we're going to do here. But getting that Roy coalition made it seem like we were closer to the foreground conclusion, or at least to the point where we're just dealing with the crybabies. Right. Um, and once you're right. doing that, I think... McCarthy's strategy all along had been try and get his coalition so angry at the crybabies um, that they just want to dig him too. Uh, and they did. And let's ask Mike Rogers about that. Yeah. Um, I have two things about that, that yeah. about that last ballot. One, uh, the timing of the switches was really weird, right, in both cases. So the Roy group didn't switch until 24 hours after the concessions had been made for reasons that I don't understand. <laughs> right? It's like, hey, we're, we've all had these negotiations. Everything's good. Nobody flips right? yeah. on day three. Not one change has occurred like after 24 hours yeah, after the concessions were made. And then all of a sudden, like Friday, it changes. And what, what was the difference between Thursday and Friday? I don't know. Yeah. Also, right after he fails on the 14th ballot, and they're, they're voting on a motion to adjourn, and there are four votes against adjourning, all of a sudden, everybody votes to not adjourn, Right. right? What happened in those couple minutes, and what promises so were made Gosar during those Gosar moments? Gosar wrangled up the present votes, I think, right? So, yeah. so the problem was is that Getz, I think it was Gates, right? Yeah. Gates made the agreement that, yeah, okay, I'll vote present, but we need to adjourn because I don't have everybody around me, and I need to make sure all my guys can do that. And then apparently he was able to reach everybody during the vote and said, okay, we've got it. And so that's what got people to change right. their vote. What is it? Right. What, what, did, what did what did Crane get? What did Rosendale get? What I mean, like those are the those are the people who were still denying him the speakership at that point in time. And I mean, we're talking about a turnaround. This is what makes the House great that you just you can't replicate in the Senate. Like you're in the middle of an adjournment vote, and the thing fl- and all of a sudden like a representative like grabs a red card, and all well, of a sudden you're not adjourning. That anymore, was a right? nice like, institutional there? piece there where they went and got the red change card. Yeah, and, yeah. and handed them in at the, uh, at, the at the at the table. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I, you know, I think the one thing that people sort of misunderstood about these deals in general is that, like, most of the deal isn't going in the rules package, and it's not going to be right. something we see publicly. And there's the stuff we know about because it was announced. There's the stuff we know about because there's reporting behind the scenes. And then there's the stuff we don't know about. The handshake deal. Yeah, and, and... There's a lot of that. And there could be a ton of that. And, you know, one reason we saw Mike Rogers get so upset... Is because there could be deals about seats and armed services and all sorts of stuff uh, that we don't necessarily know about. We have some reporting about what's going on in armed services, but there could be deals all over the committee system that you're just not going to see um, until you see them, uh, and, unless they get you know well reported on. So he's got the votes. He became the speaker, and then we did something that I don't think I've ever seen. I don't know. Maybe in the last couple hundred years, it's happened. But we voted for a speaker, and then we adjourned before we voted on the rules package. Yeah. That's really unusual. Yeah. Right? I, I, I think that was just a timing thing. It was 1.30 in the morning. Well, yeah. yes, but... Well, I mean, he had made a bunch of deals about the rules. Right. 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 So right. they had to so, actually... Yeah. And so he had to write them. He had yeah. to write them. Right. Yeah, they normally don't, right. don't have to write the right. rules right. on the fly. Well, and they wanted to meet their 72-hour requirement. I, so I wrote now, a, I wrote now a, the rules are out. Yeah. I wrote a thing about that, um, a little thread about how the rules are going to take a little longer this time around. Uh, simply because of that, like he, he had waited to barter with these procedural guys 
for too long. And basically, when you wait that long, you still have to draft it. You've got to put pen to paper, right? Um, so at a bare minimum, you're waiting for that. But on top of that, like, you don't have a rules committee right now, even if the House is um, in order, right? Or is does adopt rules, rules today, no. right? You, you're, you're not going to have like, members on that. You know, yeah. like, t- four people. But who are going to be the other three? Like, f- plus the other two. I mean, you've got, you've got to appoint a lot of people on that committee. Five. And then you've got all these other committees that you haven't ironed out because you haven't had those organizational meetings in caucus because you weren't sure that you were going to be speaker. Well, hell, you don't even have chairs for right. a lot of these committees. Right. Correct. They don't know who's going to be the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. Right. They still have to agree on that, which means no chair, no staff, no thought ahead. But let's get to the rules package tonight. I mean, that's probably going to happen. I mean, sure. I think it's 80 or 90% likely, I've, but I don't I've only seen two members against it at this point in time. Yeah. Um, I imagine that a lot of people are more. Right? Yeah, exactly. But those are cheap votes, right? Those yeah. aren't pivotal votes, and, and, and they can flex like that. Go ahead, I know. But one of the things, like, this, the, a lot of the concessions that he made weren't actually rules changes, right? Sure. They, it, they, I mean, you have the motion to vacate, which uh, we've talked about before, I just think is like, one of the lamest rules that gets more attention than it really People is. are it's so uptight. Every news article is talking about the motion to vacate as if this means anything. Yeah, I heard a thing today. It's like, oh, yeah, they could just force a vote on like on whether he's speaker or not. And like, and then it fails, and then what? You know, it's like, it I mean, it just could just come in and table it. Yeah. Not, this is like Al Green trying to impeach Trump. Right. right? It's, it's 12 minutes on the floor, right. and no one notices. I think one of the things that I think people do is they conflate this notion with you know the John Boehner episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, well, it was filed against John Boehner. It's like, but it was never actually voted on, right? right. And if it was voted on, it was not going to be successful, right? The rules, that, that, that vote did not push out John Boehner. John Boehner pushed out John Boehner because John Boehner was tired of it, right? And that's a, that's a separate thing, right? That's, that's like, that's sort of like, that's just fatigue, right, in the, in the general sense of it. You're not actually failing because of the motion to vacate. If the motion to vacate was actually going to pass, you've already lost your coalition yeah. and you've already k- this, been kicked This out. is a really important point, and I think this is important also for how you should have thought about the speakership vote and think about it going forward, is that what you have here is like a political settlement to create a majority, right? And that majority has to keep persisting procedurally through the Congress. If it persists, then no amount of motions to vacate mean much. If it doesn't persist, no amount of motions to vacate mean much because you're already collapsed. And this came up last week during the speakership fight because everyone kept trying to do these like one neat trick to get them over the top. But if you get over the top without a political settlement, then you really haven't even gotten anywhere. People are like, well, the Democrats could just vote for them. Well, only if they're going to create a majority that's durable, right? And the way this needed to be done, you know, in practice was for a Republican Party settlement that created a Republican Party majority. Because the party majority is the only one we sort of understand in the House. Now, could they have had a different settlement with a cross-party coalition that created a majority? If it was durable, yes. But not as a way to get the speakership, because then you just have every fight coming back up. You need a majority to run this place. Right. And that's that's the thing that's underappreciated in this also. And, you know, we should actually kind of talk about what the rules do do, right? Okay. Um, In terms of... Uh, the operation of the house because it doesn't decentralize the house. Typically, when you see these kind of like high pressure speaker oriented stuff, it's talking about decentralization, right? Taking power away from the speaker and giving it to the rest of the rank and file. And that happened. That's happening to a degree, right? Mm-hmm. Like open rules on appropriations bills are going to happen. Um, you're going to have uh, more power for minority factions and very important places like the rules committee. But those aren't actually rules changes, right? What, what's happening here is not a structural institutional decentralization. Right. It's a small faction trying to take the, uh, the, the powers of the speakership 
and put them in their hands to to a larger degree. or to give them the control over the speaker. Yes, right, right. and and that's an that's an important distinction to make because we're not talking about like everybody getting empowered like institutionally speaking. We're talking about a, a minority trying to take what's there and then the very powerful speakership and use it towards their ends. But let's um, talk about the different parts of the deal or the concessions McCarthy made and sort of categorize them that yeah. way. Um, some of them were actual changes to the rules of the House of Representatives, and that is the motion to vacate. Um, yeah, that's the big one. There's there's some other like budget budget chair stuff. Yeah. Um, there's some other things on like germaneness requirements on bills, single single issue bills. Like it's a lot of like rinky dink sort of tiny yeah, stuff. Yeah, mostly, and 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 most of it is stuff. Besides the motion to get, a lot of it is stuff that is not going to have even it, sort of a popular imagination effect. It's sort of so there was a lot being made about the the uh, figuring out how to give money out for the appropriations. Also having Forcing a vote on a balanced budget in 10 years. Yep. Right? Yep. Uh, holding the budget to what the level was in 2022. And these, these are policy deals. Right? right. These, these are not rules changes. These Those are aren't rules changes. That's true. These That's are true. policy. I, the actual rules changes that I found somewhat interesting were the Holman rule was reinstituted, which is which is interesting for our audience, yep. right? Because what that essentially says is, is that you can offer something in an appropriations bill which defunds or fires a person, yes. which is yes. something that was started back in the 1850s or 60s and then was abandoned for a long time. 1870s, and then it was abandoned for a long time and then you brought back recently. That's more of a messaging device than uh, an actual tool of power. Don't forget, like this was in place in twenty in the 115th Congress. Yep. Right, um, the so so the Holman right. Rule has is, is not new to the House. And, and during those Congresses, I am, I'm aware of zero federal officials who lost their salary. Right? Correct. Um, so this could be, I mean, but I mean, uh, Secretary Mayorkas <laughs> maybe maybe thinking about his, his, his upcoming salary. Or, or anybody um, who's a career employee who does right. something that really ticks off. You know, you get one single IRS agent right. who's auditing Trump and they can decide to go after it. Now, does that go to the person, Senate? The, yeah, too. this person's not going to lose their job right. uh, because it's only a house only. I mean, they, they put some stuff in about um, germaneness, too. Right. Um, yes. That they've got a new vote on whether something could be germane because we used to pump things together. I mean, one of the big rules changes, or the rules changes kind of overarching that you're seeing is this sense that we're not able to deal with a whole lot in one. We don't want those kind of political deals. We want single right. and by, issue and by bills. That, you mean like, hey, we're going to talk about immigration, but in order to get the a vote on immigration, we've got to like stick a transportation deal in right. there as well, like pull over like 40 members or whatever it may be. In addition to that, we got to like pull over this other thing from like FBI or whatever it may be, and just like stacking up a bunch of bills that don't bunch of bills that don't really relate together in order to get a majority, yeah. right? And that's what they want to prevent. They want right. they want to be discussing these things individually in single issue stuff because then then we can really have that black and white decision. And what this really leads to is a lot of things that go down yeah. um, because there are a lot of things that people will vote against if it's just by itself. But if there's a sweetener added to it. All right, I'll swallow that bad part to take the overall. Yep. Um, and, and they're trying to eliminate that, which really is going to lead to the House, I think, having a much harder time getting any kind of. If they're successful, that. if they're successful, it's uh, not obvious that you can succeed on all, all the stuff you're demanding. Just well, if you've got if you if you get three seats on the Rules Committee, it helps. Sure, that's but, but that's, that's not a rule. This, this, this is the this is the other class. That's not. That's yeah. That's not okay, a rules. Stay with the rules. Organization. I don't think we got the structural stuff. We have sort of the policy promises. But then we have sort of the seats in the locations of power. And I think this really goes to what Josh was talking about, that the, the real meat of this is that the rebels, uh, Freedom Caucus types, won 
probably, as best we can tell, a lot of goodwill from the speaker for placing them in positions he has authority to place people, and in places he doesn't really have authority to place people, right? And so the Rules Committee uh, in the House that essentially gatekeeps the floor and sets the agenda there is purely speaker discretion as of now. And so the speaker can make deals to put people there. Um, and the only recourse people who don't like that have is to start voting against the speaker on other things, right? Or, well, it's a caucus vote too, right? It's, it's, it's technically it's subject caucus. to speaker Technic- well, technically. It, Actually, it's, it's, a, it's a house vote. Um, there is a House resolution which yeah, appoints te- the all, members. Technically. technically, this is all in the so hands of the speaker, there. though, by modern practice. Until true, yes. and, and and that could have always in, included bargains, but the, but the practice for the longest time, at least since the '60s, when when the Southerners were broken off it, was that this would be sort of the speaker's most loyal people, and that the speaker undoubtedly controlled this committee, and that is not going to be true. Right. Oh, right. I'm going to totally rewrite my LNO talk. It's, right. it's such a pain. And this is going to be a. You know, we don't know functionally how big a difference this is going to make, but potentially this is a huge difference in the operation of the House of Representatives. If you have three or maybe even four members of the Rules Committee who are in the majority party, but not ostensibly loyal to the Speaker and didn't get those seats because of their loyalty to the Speaker. My understanding is that's three, and that's, that's the number that's been settled on. Yep. And that changes the math in a big way yep. in, 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 in the Rules Committee. So you have 13 members, you've got nine majority, four minority. Um, if three of those majority decide that they want to do something different, they can they can functionally deny the, the speaker's hand, uh, hand-picked people of a majority to do stuff on the House floor. Like what and, bills and come that, up, the terms under which right. they come up. And the reason for that is because the minority is never going to help the majority vote for rules. So you're Correct. always going to have those four Democratic votes against the rule. And so combining the three outliers with that would give you seven, which would give you a majority on the rules. So, like, unless... The minority decides that the majority is offering them some favorable terms on something. And right? you know, the, and this the, is where it gets really third dimension. The complications of this are are widespread because there is an argument, and I've seen it made now, and there's something to it that this isn't that big a deal because anything they can block in rules, they can just block on the floor. But I don't think that's quite right. No, the way the rule shapes, the way the rule shapes how these things go is much deeper than just stopping something on the floor. Uh, there's going to be times where, say, the Freedom Caucus and the Democrats are going to be completely in sync on this stuff. If it's just opening things up so you can't get a closed rule on something, that they both eat for different reasons. Um, and you may see some, some things there. Other times it's going to be Freedom Caucus doesn't like the policy idea. Forget about opening up the process, right? Um, and that may be something the Democrats feel differently about, or the Democrats even agree with the majority on, right? Like the Democrats aren't going to stand in the way of a CR of the Rules Committee the way the Freedom Caucus might. But there's never going to be a rule considered on the House that had four Democrats and three Freedom Caucus guys vote for it. I mean, that rule will never find No, it's a way. negative power. Right, right? It's, it's a blocking It's a negative power. power. It's totally sure. a blocking power, right? I mean, that's the thing. Most of this stuff is blocking power. And so what I find interesting are some of the changes to the appropriations process. Right? They want to have single bills, and they want to have votes on single bills, and they want them to be open rules. And I had to explain to a couple of people, sounds great, right? Open rule, why not? Well, the last time we tried to do an open rule on an appropriations bill, the Democrats offered an amendment which said no money can go to anything that's dealing with a Confederate. That got enough votes to pass, and then the, other, the Republicans pulled that bill, and we stopped the appropriations process in its tracks. Open rules only work if you're willing to lose. And this group, I don't know if they're willing to lose. And not even willing to lose, but also willing to 
suffer some votes that are not great for your vulnerable members. Absolutely. And sticking them, sticking your moderate members in bind after bind after bind. The closed rule is the best friend of the vulnerable majority party member. And the thing that I hate most about this deal, because I hate something about something all the time, um, but what I hate most about it, I think, is, sorry, I gotta grab some. We gotta, you gotta refill um, beer too. Is the idea that the appropriations bills are actually going to become law, or actually going to be <laughs> functional in any way, shape, or form, right? I mean, at the same time that you're opening up the appropriations process and trying to make it more accommodating to the rest of the membership, you're binding the House to balancing the budget within 10 years. Right? Right. In order for these appropriations bills to have a chance, have a prayer of becoming law, you need a budget, right? And Senate Democrats are never going to agree to a budget that balances within 10 years on mostly spending cuts. Only on cuts. Right, only, only on, on cuts. cuts. It's just not feasible, right? And if you don't have a budget, then you don't have a live appropriations process. So what we're actually talking about is opening up an appropriations process to a bunch of different amendments for a bunch of bills that have never become law. Yep. It's, it's a complete shell game in a lot of ways. Because... For the rules, and we'll go back to the rules for a second. Which, I mean, which then puts the, which puts the moderates inside a really terrible spot. Terrible. I have to vote against terrible amendments on bills that will never become law because reasons, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You've got to be furious if you're the So spot. a major rule change that the Republicans are putting forward that was required, but also probably one they would have done anyway, was they're doing away with something called pay-as-you-go, mm -hmm. which essentially was if you're raising the cost of something, you've got to be able to find offsetting either cuts or revenue to do it. They're changing that to cut as you go. Yeah. Which is bringing back something that they had before. Right. Which means they're only looking at one side of the equation. To be able to balance a budget, there are two sides of the equation. You can cut spending or you can raise revenues. They are doing everything in their power, including saying that any bill that tries to raise revenue has a three-fifths majority point of order lying against it. Yeah. Um, it. It puts a heavy thumb on the scale to say that only spending cuts are the way that we're going to balance our budget. And that's going to be problematic. Um, that's problematic even for members within their caucus. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> because, yeah. because your spending cuts can come from only a handful of places. Let's think about what the biggest pots of money are. Social Security, okay, untouchable. Medicare, probably aren't going to mess with that. We could. Medicaid, that's very big. Oh, yeah, the next big one, defense spending. Right? And we've already heard a lot that the defense hawks are like, and the Democrats and Republicans can come together on that yeah. over top of the rebels. Right. But, and this is where like the rules committee stuff becomes like 3D chess type stuff. Right? It's like, what happened? I mean, defense spending and increases in defense spending, that's a huge bipartisan issue. Yeah. And they, we just did 10%. By major right? bipartisan, I mean, like 300 members support that type of increase, uh, like, or at least around that number, right? The huge, other huge chunks. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Conservatives, how do conservatives block that, even with the votes on the Rules Committee? Do they have that authority? Yeah. It's going mean, to be really tough. The, the other thing about the Rules Committee seats for these Freedom Caucus members is you're not giving the Freedom Caucus three seats on the Rules Committee. Like that, that, That's what the deal sort of shapes like. You're giving three members of Congress seats on the Rules Committee that the Speaker wouldn't have otherwise put on there. And they may have their own individual idiosyncrasies, right? Um, and they may want to block stuff in the Rules Committee that they couldn't block on the floor because the Freedom Caucus doesn't care. Uh, and they may bargain for their own goodies, too. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen. I think you can overstate this because on a significant cross-section of legislation, those people agree with the Republicans, and you're not going to have any problem with rules. And on another significant chunk of it, they'll be able to work out a relatively easy deal, and it'll move forward. And then there's going to be stuff with us at each other's throats. It's going to be weird. Yeah, it's going to be weird. It's going to be really weird. And, you know, I, this is how the House changes. Right. Right. This is how the House changes, not by some grand design where we should have more press, less of progress, but by fights among people over individual things and individual congresses. And I, 
you told me the speaker was going to lose control of the rules committee, I would have said you're nuts. Right. But we're here, we're right back here to something like the early 60s when Rayburn doesn't have full control over rules for the purpose of bringing, in that case, civil rights bills to the floor, and in this case, some set of Freedom Caucus adjacent policies uh, that, that the majority of Republicans would happily vote for. What's the rules committee vote going to be when they go to raise the debt ceiling? See, I mean, like, like, what, what is that? Like, that that's who's, about where I was Who's gonna, the voting coalition, That's right? where I was about to go. Are we talking about Democrats and the five that McCarthy appointed? Or the six that McCarthy appointed? Right? Are we, because, or are there going to be, like, a handful of, like, two Democrats? I mean, there's a prior it's, question here. It's just crazy. We're, this is a prior question because everything you're saying assumes that McCarthy is going to play the leader and the responsible guy who is going right. to sort of whip the Republicans yeah. into shape, and he's going to build the coalition with the Democrats to do this with, like, 225 sensible people wherever we can find them. I'm not even sure McCarthy's going to do that. Yeah, he right? can't. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, that's why I was like, I, I, do we even have? Are, are we going to show up? Right. Are, are, are we going to raise the debt ceiling? Or we're just going to take the Senate bill and like have a discharge petition to raise the debt ceiling in the House. Yeah, I mean, it's getting to that point where you wonder how they're going to accomplish that because it's going to be something that's been unprecedented. I mean, the discharge within petition. The, last, within is, the discharge petition is the way to do it if McCarthy doesn't want to be the responsible leader, right? Like, I. The idea that McCarthy's going to play Boehner on all this stuff and is going to tell these guys to go pound sand and, 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 and make deals with Democrats doesn't strike me so far as the way he's been operating. Right, yeah. <laughs> the evidence does not seem to indicate no. that that's his style. And as much as John Boehner, John Boehner really did this one time, and it was on uh, the, the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank, right? He went through discharge, allowed a discharge petition to come up because his chair like refused to do it. But that was the one thing that he would do. And he was one of those enforcer types, right? That was sort of like, we've done the thing that you've wanted to do. It's not possible. We're going to do the thing that we have to do now. And it happened once under Haster with campaign finance reform. Right. But, right. It doesn't, it, the discharge petition doesn't happen very often. More importantly, it's incredibly slow. Yeah. And we're not known for starting things early when we're dealing with things like the uh, debt ceiling. I mean, I... I, I right. Do not see a scenario right now where we don't breach the debt ceiling. Right. I wouldn't go that far. I don't. I don't see a scenario where there's no shutdown next October. That right. seems like a heavy favorite. I don't know if you can scare enough people straight about the debt ceiling that I, you know is Fred Upton going to be in the back of the chamber again? Right. I mean, when we went back to uh, 2008 when they were trying to do the bailout bill and it failed the first time, he's back in the back of the chamber going, you know, 700. 800, and he was talking about how far the market was falling at that moment. Um, I don't know if there's a Fred Upton staying because he's retired now, right? I don't know if there's somebody who's going to be in the back of the chamber scaring people. A lot of these folks really believe this is not an issue. It's going to be very, very hard to do. And you're right, it does take forever, right? He's got to lie 30 days, right? And then you have to wait until the first or the second or fourth Monday of Wednesday. And then you can't vote on until the next Wednesday. Right, exactly. And it just, it takes forever. And so, like, the idea that the Senate would be on its game, and the Senate's a whole different issue as well. Like, Mitch McConnell was insisting that Democrats do this by themselves the last Congress. Is he doing that again this Congress now that the Republicans are in charge of the House? Like, that's a tall order, because if that's the case, then we're not raising the debt ceiling. Right? He's, I mean, he's got a, he, I'm sure he's reading the cards, and he, he's nine times, nine steps in front of me in the um, terms of this. Oh, all of us. He has got to figure out, like, what he's going to do in terms, because... Most of the deals that are going to make government function are going to come from the Senate. Which is so unusual, right? We always talk about the Senate being the legislative graveyard. Right. But at this point, it kind of was going to have to push stuff across the House. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think all the must-pass legislation is going to be 
at best, sort of, McCarthy placates a conservative bill that dies in the Senate, compromise bill comes back to the House from the Senate, figure out how to deal with it, Kevin McCarthy. And I just, McCarthy just doesn't feel like the guy who's going to pull a banner and go get 120 Democrats to vote with 100 Republicans and watch his caucus vote against something as he passes it. And, and this is where the motion to vacate becomes interesting, right? Because if he does that too many times, does that coalition stay together to keep him in office? I think it does. I mean, because it really hinges on what Democrats want to do, right? I mean, I don't think that you're going to get... Kim McCarthy's not going to lose his entire conference. There's no way that's going to happen. Um, it does matter, like, what Democrats are doing, right? And so they have some leverage now, like, hey, Kevin, you want to keep your job? Like, what are you going to hand over? Like, how are you going to help? But, but that's um, a tough but, Venn diagram for him handing anything to Democrats and right? keeping his coalition. Correct. But it, it's, it's just, it's extraordinarily difficult, but it does matter, like, what Democrats are going to do. And I don't think Democrats are going to want mid well, maybe they will, like, after a bunch of stuff happens, right? After, like, some must-pass bills are, in fact, finally passed, um... Do they do they want to force that issue? They could theoretically, I don't I don't, really but I don't think they it. want. I, I don't want. I don't think they want to have another leadership round. My understanding right? was that Pelosi and Bain, or Pelosi, had made relatively clear to Bain that if he was put up on the motion to vacate, the Democrats would sustain him. Right. right. Just, we're not changing speakers mid Congress. Right. right? That, that kind of thing. Last so thing I, they want to do is have another negotiation with the right, Freedom Caucus, exactly. deciding who the speaker's going <laughs> right. to be. Right. right. Fair so, point. So you rip out McCarthy. What, what's next? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like at least we have the rules, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're going to nominate Jim Jordan again, right? He's. I don't think he's going to get a majority. It's just it 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 does it, it does raise a lot of questions, but I don't think it's going to ever gonna, like it like Matt was saying. It's not going to be ever going to be successful, right? Um, because if McCarthy's going to, to get pushed out, he'll probably just retire. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be successful in that, like, the motion of vacate is going to be what gets him, right? What's going to get him is if he loses, if, the, if his partisan majority loses all confidence in him, such that they're not going to support him. All right, so, so let's talk a little bit about how this plays longer term. Okay. We're in, as we always are, an election cycle, but the election cycle this time is for president again, too. Um, curious what your thoughts are how this played for Trump. I... I Called it another nail in his coffin for his 2024. Uh, but maybe with McCarthy getting the speakership, it's not such a terrible thing. I have no idea. Yeah. I, 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 my, my hunch is that the speakership election has no bearing on primary candidacies. He's probably right. Um, Trump, Trump looked... Trump came sort of like publicly involved twice. One was when he was yelling at people on True Social or whatever on Tuesday to vote for Kevin and stuff being much babies. That seemed to have no effect on the votes Tuesday or Wednesday. But the other was he was making phone calls for McCarthy on Friday. Um, and we don't know what the value of those were, but that was quite obvious. So I, I agree. I, I, have no, I have no clue. I, honestly, like the speakership fight doesn't feel like the kind of thing, despite all the media and despite everything we're saying about it, doesn't feel like the kind of thing that penetrates to typical voter or practical yeah. primary voter. Like, oh, McCarthy won the speakership after they a little bit Washington, like, move on. Right, yeah. I, 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 I don't have a good beat on that, but my sense is that the House election speakers is not. One thing I will say about the long term is that, you know, what happened here is a consequence of sort of a fight in the majority party, but it's really a consequence structurally of the narrow majorities we've had lately, right? right. If the Republicans win 240 seats, McCarthy just tells these people to go flip off, right, and he just does what he wants to do with his with his 220 or whatever, and they, and they, they learn to deal with it, right? Um, so the, the narrow majorities here um, are really driving institutional change in Congress. I don't know how durable that change is. I don't think this is particularly durable. The Democrats went back to the House. The Speaker will take, take the Rules Committee. Um, what prevented that in history 
was that the Rules Committee also was, was also bolstered by the incredibly taught seniority system, um, so that you just couldn't get people off it because too many people wanted to defend the seniority system. No one wants to do that. No one wants to do that. Yeah. Well, it also became an issue, like, the seniority system made it in 1955 when Howard Smith took the, took the chair. But, I mean, it was, it was a problem before. So between 1937 and 1952, like, the normal, like, liberal Democrats did not have a functional majority on rules, right? You had Eugene Cox, uh, Howard Smith, and, and, and uh, Representative Dyes from Texas, who would basically vote with Republicans and just, they would pass a lot of conservative stuff over the wishes of Sam Rayburn. Um, but when it, it becomes a totally different level in 1955 when Howard Smith becomes chair and the Rules Committee is basically under the thumb of somebody that nobody in the Democratic Party wanted to chair that committee. And it's amazing to watch and, and read the, the sort of newspaper clippings from 1954 and 1955 when it becomes obvious that the, the chair is leaving, <laughs> Adolf Sabbath is retiring, and Howard Smith is next. They're like, we got to do something about this Rules Committee. It's, it's, amazing. it's instantaneous as soon as he's in line. And so, yeah, like, you don't have and a lot of... it took them a decade right. before they get anything done? Yeah, well, I mean, well, they expanded the Rules Committee in 1963. They put in, in 1965, you have the 21-day uh, rule, which is, like, if there's any rule that's been submitted and has not been had, received a hearing, then you can rip it out of rules. Um, so there was a few things that lasted two years. But there were a few things that happened. It's not until 1975 that really break. But Matt's right. There's no institutional mechanisms that keep this sort of autonomy of these three members in place right. long-term. Right? It's a handshake deal. It's simply an organizational thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if Republicans gain, say, 20, 30 seats in the next election after a thing. Like, they are out of there. And not only that, like, we're probably like, doing something like Longworth did. Like, hey, everybody who opposed me and opposed the rules package that I presented at the previous Congress, guess what? You're not in the conference anymore. Yeah, that is right? the, that, what Josh is mentioning is the example from 1923 where the speaker had to. Uh, multiple ballots and had to give in to sort of progressive faction, and then as soon as they expanded the majority in, in the twenty four election, they said the hell with you. And, and Longworth, quote unquote, read them out of the party. Yeah, they'd also done some things like sponsoring uh, Robert LaFollette for the for the the presidency that year, as opposed to the Republican nominee. And they're like, yeah. if you're not going to back the Republican nominee, then you're not a Republican. Like, so the durability of what's what's happening right now is is unclear. I I do think that it is a very unique situation here where we seem to be on the margins, reducing the speaker's power without really empowering the natural alternative to the leadership, which is the committee system, right? We That's just seem right. to be empowering a floor faction. So, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, what, what is it going to look like for the committees? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, it looks as if we're obviously delayed action. Normally, by this point in a new Congress, you at least know who the chairs of every committee are going to be. If they've at least started to hire up their staff directors, and other staff, they're starting to lay out their agendas. There's actually something in the rules package which says that on March 1st, every committee has to vote on, except for rules, appropriations, and ethics, every committee has to vote on what their oversight plan is going to be by March the 1st. Some of these committees may not be stood up until the middle of February. Um, it's going to be hard for them to put that together. I mean, it could be another two weeks before we have chairs for some of these committees. Not just their oversight plan, but they have to report back every lapsed authorization for every program and agency, every potential, like every authorization that needs attention, this Congress, and that needs to be, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of stuff that an incoming committee is going to have to deal with. Um, and yeah, they, 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 don't, they don't exist right now. Right. It's, it's like it, they're, they're getting a, a five-day uh, delay in, in starting and then you're going to have to staff them up. You're going to have to assign the people. I mean, all these organizing meetings 
normally happen in December of the previous right. year, right? And so, like, everything's going to get delayed. If you remember when Democrats first took over the chamber in 19, like, it took them months to really kind of gear up and start, like, submitting, because they were staffing up their committees. They were putting, like, members are just getting situated. Um, it takes time to get those things in place, and, and it's going to take even longer this time around. Like, will they be in place by the time they're supposed to pass a budget in the House? Not that it matters. They gave the budget chair kind of, kind of unilateral authority yeah. to set the levels this, this this first session, which is kind of nuts, right? What, that said, but, this would all be a bigger deal if, say, the Republicans had, like, control of the Senate and the presidency. There's not a right. lot of non-must-pass legislating that they're going to do. That's, that that's amounts a, to more than a message but, but, It's not oversight. Right. But that, that's the thing. That was one of the things. Like, is this a crisis, right? Or is the speakership, the fact that we don't have a speaker, like, a week later, is that a crisis? And I think, like... Not really. Yeah. Like, uh, if there was another crisis out there, like, this yeah. would be a crisis. But there was nothing, there's nothing really yeah. passing I, I, at I, the moment. I, I, Daniel Schumann wrote a piece this morning about this, that he did not like how the media was portraying this as a crisis or sort of a, 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 a sort of terrible thing for American politics. I, and I tend to agree with him. I, I think that this is reflective of sort of dysfunctional party, maybe, but even that seems sort of tenuous. This is how parties fight, and it's how yeah. they're doing it in public. Um, I, I do think that, you know, 1923 episode is similar in that nature. I, I do think the speakership fights in the 1850s were, were themselves not crises, but were reflective of a bigger crisis, the slave crisis, right? right. Um, and, and that was sort of that. But I, I don't see this as that, right? This isn't like... One thing that was really strange about the speakership balloting is, like, there wasn't really a beef between the Democrats and Republicans on the floor. Right? They're just kind of looking at each other across the aisle. Yeah. Democrats are kind of staring, Republicans are staring at each other. And it wasn't really animosity, partisan animosity in that sense. This is a party working out sort of how, how it's going to be. I think that's a really important point because um, it's, it's a legitimate discussion, right? It's a totally, who is going to lead your party is a yeah. legitimate political question, yeah. right? And it's sort of like, you know, like the, the family argument that got a little bit too heated and went a little bit too intense, it sort of spilled out the front door for all the neighbors to see. It's sort of like what it turns into. It's a legitimate discussion, yeah. though, to like figure out who you're, what the party's going to be. And it's indicative of the parties fracturing within themselves. right? And it's not just the Republican Party. The Democratic Party right. is doing it as well. Um, not to the same degree. Um, but these parties are, are not as unified as we present them. It's not like we're really polarized. So we, we are. Don't get me wrong. Like, we're very partisan. We're very polarized. But there's a lot of stuff that gets framed as partisanship that's really just, intra, like, intra-party problems, right? Yeah. And for the last decade plus, we have not passed a budget. Right? Keep in mind, a budget is a majority-only passed document through the House and the Senate. And despite the fact we have had unified government several times over the last 12 years, yeah. for 14 years, they're not passing budgets because they can't agree amongst themselves about what they want to do. And so this sort of like latest leadership fight, it's a continuation of a lot of problems that Republicans have had for the last decade in terms of budgeting, in terms of really fundamental Since 2010. Stuff. And it's right. coming to a head, right? I mean, it has not been resolved. It's coming to a head. And so these things are boiling over into the public sphere. Like It's, well, a, one, it's a totally reasonable yeah, one, one thing that I was thinking about was that these sort of party nominating fights were so on public display back before the primary system took over for the presidential elections that if you lived in the 50s or 60s, you watch parties do this every four years at their convention. It's, like a, it's how a party puts a president. They all get together, they get different factions, and they fight about it, right? 
Um, and they're informed by voters, but it's not voters making the choice. And that this is the regular feature of democratic politics, that parties make decisions, sometimes publicly, and sometimes by screaming at each other for a while. And uh, the lack of sort of reference to that, if we still had sort of the convention nominating system, every four years you watch both parties do this, um, you might not think this is that sort of outlier, right? It's unusual. This is not how the speakers pick normally. And parties that were really sort of separated seem to be able to congeal on speakers in the past, and they don't now. Um, but that's okay. This so, is not like a crisis of democracy right, so for a party to be. Is this more indicative of the fact that the House of Representatives essentially is going to be an oversight organ only? Largely, yeah. And then when the must-pass stuff happens, it'll be a crisis institution. Right. So I mean, <laughs> basically, <laughs> must-pass stuff we're looking at is Farm Bill, Appropriations, National Defense Authorization Act. Those are debt the limit. debt limit. Those are the, the biggies right. that are coming down the pike. Um, some of those can be just continued. I mean, you can continue a farm bill. That's not a big deal. Those are the known crises, right? You could also right. have anything that pops up. Right. I mean, funding for Ukraine right. could be considered something. Pan- right. right. The pandemic could get deadly again. Oh but God. don't even say but it. Don't even say it. Ugh. But it seems as if really we're looking at. I mean, they've even changed the name of the committee. Right now, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Right. When they pass the rules tonight. Um, they've, they've done away with, the one last thing on the rules, and then we can figure out how to wrap up, is um, that they've done away with um, unionization of offices. Yep. Um, so that, that little experiment where a couple of different house offices have unionized Lasted um, four goes months, away. Four months? Not even, yeah, <laughs> I think, give or take on the three offices that, that approved it. Um, so, I mean, there, there are these minor changes um, on the sides, but there is this indication that, yeah, if you're concerned in a federal agency about oversight coming your way from the Republicans in the House, yeah, you're not wrong. Right. Um, that's about the only thing they're going to be able to agree on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, with that said, do you guys have any closing comments? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I have to think about it. Yeah, I was, uh, I was thinking about, once again, we knew this six weeks ago or whatever, but I was thinking about SAS leaving the Senate. And uh, it, it's not, it does not make me happy to watch relatively young people walk away from the Senate after winning re-election just to take jobs running a college somewhere. It doesn't feel like that is indicative of good incentives for people. Either the job sucks in the Senate or we're just not paying them enough or whatever. But I don't like it when people walk away from U.S. Senate seats that they could have for another four years. Something, something must be really wrong in the Senate if people just don't want to. Yeah, no, I mean, he is getting a six-time salary increase, but still, you're absolutely right. I mean, he was he was a negotiator. I mean, he tried to, he was conservative, um, but but he tried to work with both sides to get things done um, and just got frustrated by it all. And I get that. It, it, it is a frustrating place right now. Um, but it is a place. It's a place that's going to continue to operate. It's a place that's going to continue to have impact on the executive branch as well as the judiciary. Because um, in the Senate, we will see probably judges pump through at a slightly faster rate. Um, and, uh, you know, we will keep you informed as we see changes coming down the pike. Again, we're going to try to keep these rolling about every two weeks. Um, if you have comments or questions or thoughts, send them to our way. And send them to me at mark.harkins at georgetown.edu. And we will look forward to the next time we have a chance to talk with you at Congress Two Beers End. See ya.